0: Shattering the Glass Ceiling is a production of the Connecticut Democratic Party. I'm Tanai Baker. And I'm Jacqueline
1: Cozen. And we're your hosts for conversations with women who are the trailblazers, rising stars, elected officials, and campaign pros who make you say,
0: I'm with her. Today's guest is former state representative and Eastern Connecticut superstar, Pat Wilson Phineas.
1: Hi everybody thank you and welcome to another episode of shattering the glass ceiling uh we have an amazing woman today uh former state representative pat wilson phineas welcome thank you for joining us absolutely we're happy you're here um and we'll get started we're gonna just jump right into it and we'll take okay. it over to tanaya baker our uh, amazing operations director
0: tanaya okay. hi again thank you for coming absolutely. uh so Let's just get right into it. So the okay. first question is, <laughs> tell us about your life
2: story. Where did you grow up? How did you get to where you are? Well, okay. Well, I grew up in Ashford, Connecticut. Um, mm-hmm. My I was, you know, uh, born in Willimantic um, and uh, grew up in Ashford. My dad was in the service at the time. He bought some property um, in Ashford. I, well, I guess I should say I was in Willimantic first until almost first grade. Then my dad... Um, bought property in Ashford and built a home there. We moved to Ashford and so from second grade um, until maybe about almost sixth grade, I was in Ashford. Uh, my dad who was in the service um, got an assignment in Madrid, Spain. And so when I was about mm, 11 going on 12, we went to um, Madrid and I lived in Europe for about five, six years, came back, Finished Eo Smith, finished my sophomore, uh, no junior and senior year at Eo Smith. Then I started at uh, at UConn. Um, Went to UConn for a couple of years, intending to be a veterinarian. Uh, Dropped out. (laughs) Decided to elope with my boyfriend. Bad, bad move. Bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) Decided to run off and get a job in New Haven and take off with my boyfriend against my parents' better wishes and all of their warnings and, uh, you know, found out they were right over the next seven years. I took about a seven-year hiatus to get over that, uh, let's call it an adventure. Oh, wow. Um, But during that adventure, I became, you know, through my involvement um, with my uh, husband, not quite at the time, involved in just about every helping system that I would later come to run <laughs> so it was a rough seven years in terms of life experience but actually it was some of the best experience that I had because um, you know you, you've got lots of educational experiences but then you've got life experiences and had I not had that seven years of interacting with like I said every. Let's see, the criminal justice system, the prison system, the substance abuse system, the mental health system, the welfare system, the family violence system, the all of those systems I had some experience with in that seven years. So as a result, when I kind of got back on the proverbial career track, it meant um, leaving my husband, <laughs> going back to school, going back home, going to school with my son, and you know, from there. I completed my last two years of college, and then uh, went into law school. And in my first year in law school, I became—I was uh, staying with my with my cousin in Hartford who was attending the Yukon School of Social Work. And I found myself so fascinated with her, you know, like you'd run into it in the restroom or something. I pick up her books, and I was absolutely enamored of social work. And so I decided um, to split my time and try to complete both degrees. So UConn had a program called, euphemistically called the dual degree program. I say euphemistically because it only meant you got to share one field placement. So I had um, a field placement for 15 credits of law and the same field placement for 15 credits of social work. So that's how you got to combine the two, but they weren't, um, you know, it wasn't like exactly coordinated. It was sort of like you kind of make it work. Yeah. um but the one placement was at um in Norwich uh, a hospital where i was doing um legal work for people that were in, you know there interred there and the other was with legal services in hartford where i was like a legal social worker so i was managing juvenile justice cases as a legal social worker so that was the, the you know the training yeah. So I completed my, um, you know, law degree and social work degree in uh, 1981, passed the bar, took the, took the bar and passed it, and then did neither law nor social work. <laughs> I went, went into teaching, went into St. Joseph College, where uh, for the next eight years, I taught law-related social work and developed a master's program uh, the, the Center for Child Welfare Studies was a master's program in child welfare. Now, this was a while ago. I mean, you, you forget I forget how old I am, but this was at a time when nobody was talking about child sexual abuse, when it was like a untouchable and nobody was, you know, child welfare was very different than it was then. And so I'm pleased that I was at the beginning, in some ways, of integrating practice in that field, because the Program that I have been built at St. Joseph College, which was the Child Welfare Master's Program, was an interdisciplinary program that brought together the disciplines of law, social work, medicine, and police science. Wow. Around the issues of intervening in child sexual abuse or child abuse generally. And so it was a, an accredited master's, program. ultimately we got it accredited through the State of Connecticut Master's Program. And we produced some students, but maybe eight or nine, before I decided to leave St. Joe's, I, I had, um, you know, it, 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 I loved academia, I really did, but the opportunity to actually practice what I had been teaching. My career was always like one step ahead of me. Like I was hired to teach right out of my law social work degree. No. But I hadn't practiced. Yeah. <laughs> so here you are teaching what you haven't done. Yeah. And that's what I mean by being ahead of myself. So when the opportunity came for me to take a job at DC at what the time was Department of Children and Youth Services, mm-hmm. um, you know, what preceded DCF, um, I had the opportunity to, to come on as the executive assistant to then Commissioner Amy Wheaton. Um, and while I was in that position, the agency was sued by the um, Connecticut Civil Liberties Union in the WANF F. lawsuit.
1: Oh, interesting! And it was wow. interesting.
2: It was fascinating because I was right there, and they selected me to. I was. Um, I started off as the an exec, uh, as the executive assistant, sort of to the commissioner, or you know. But I morphed into being statewide the director of Children's Protective Services. And it was in that capacity that when the suit came, they picked me to be part of a three-person team that would represent the department in solving the consent decree or in writing the, in coming to a solution. So it was a unique process. Judge of the federal court, um, Ted Stein of CCLU out of New York, and um, and me uh, worked, you know, uh, sort of the three of us, over about a four-month period, sequestered at a hotel in the Howard Johnsons in New Haven, where we were able to interview people, to do tours, to collect information, in other words, and then sit and write what ultimately, you know, became the consent Decree, which is still in operation. We developed... Um, manuals. Each of us developed various manuals depending on what our area. I know I remember mine was in you know, like foster care and adoption, and uh, you know developing the foster parent train. You know, just various aspects that became the manuals, which supported the uh, consent decree. So the consent decree was a document of about 30 pages, but it referenced manuals, and each of the manuals then, you know, filled out what the rest of that was. So <coughs> a lot about that. But it's still in force and I'm, you know, I, like I said, it's 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 good to see the department, the way the department is functioning now because it was very different than it was, you know, in the old days. I'm just thrilled by the work that uh, Vanessa Durant and others um, are, are doing and have done with that department, but it was a long haul and it, it came from a kind of bad place initially. Yeah. So that was, um, you know, that was a significant step. Now, when that was over, I chose, not to go back to DCF because basically I had reorganized the entire department and sort of written my position out of it. And I ended up as a result at DSS in a job called, I think we called it social services planning. It's kind of name they give when they don't, there's no job and they're kind of <laughs> like, try to create a spot, so like a creative spot spot position <laughs> for about a year till they figured out what to do with me because contractually they had to do something, but they didn't, it's like part of the consent decree was that I would be placed, but there were no, you know, beyond that, it wasn't clear. So it's kind of an odd year of not knowing exactly what to do with me. Then they asked me to be the director of administrative hearings and appeals at DCF. I mean, excuse me, at DSS. Um, DSS by now had become DSS because it started off as DIM. We're going back, you know, Department of Income Maintenance. We're going back a ways in the when I got there, it turned into DSS. And so it's a little complicated to explain. But anyway, I'm now at DSS, Director of Administrative Hearings and Appeals. And I was that for several years, it was great. I love that job because you got to see all of the difficult cases, all of the things that are coming in for the department would end up in administrative hearings. And as the boss, I would get to review them and see, You know, so it was was a wonderful time and a great way of, to me, bringing law and social work together. Anyway, long story short, um, eventually they, promoted me to be a regional administrator in the Department of Social Services. And I was the the regional administrator for region four, which was four offices, Hartford, New Britain, Bristol, um, Manchester. And then um, Joyce Thomas was commissioner at the time. She decided to go work for the feds, leaving the commissioner position open. And I'm not sure how my name came up, but somehow or other, Mr. Rowland uh, got my name probably from Joyce and I was asked to, you know, consider being the commissioner and after the dance they put you through, <laughs> eventually yes. that happened. And so I was in that position for, let me see, from 1999 into 2007. Wow. So through the Roland administration and through the first term of the REL administration. And then when she had an opportunity to pick her own team, she did. And I, that was my first retirement. Um, I was home for about, I don't know, four months, and John Hickenlooper called from Denver um, and asked if I would consider coming out and doing something with human services out there, and I did, ultimately. So I went to Denver for three years. I got married before I went to Denver. <laughs> I got about my husband there. Um, actually, it all happened very, very quickly. We The opportunity with Denver came up at the same time as we were deciding what we were gonna do and we decided to get married and move to Denver. So it all kind of came together at the same time. Um, I was in Denver for about three years as uh, director of human services, which there is essentially like the commissioner, but they have a county system, but their county was about as big as Connecticut. So, you know, so I mean, it's when you think about, um, you know, the county system, it was kind of funny because when you're in a place like Colorado, and you go to a meeting you might have to take a plane depending on where you know depending on you know I mean it wasn't like you get in the car and drive uh you know 15 minutes to get to you know was that a different kind of a, of a setup but at any rate um eventually I came back from uh, Denver and I was then asked by the state to step into a problem they were having up in Norwalk with one of the community action agencies Hmm. And so I, that was fun. I commuted from Ashford to Norwalk. Wow! Oh my god! <laughs> well, I ran up a lot of uh, a lot of uh, miles, or what do you at the local Holiday I mean, the local. You know, I've yeah. gotten uh, where I stayed, but wherever yeah, it was, I, I collected a bunch of miles. The- <laughs> you know, but yeah, yeah, so I could stay. But so I, I, you know, I stayed there, but I commuted for about two years, and then I went into. My what I thought was my final retirement until I got disgusted with what was going on and decided to run for office. Which was uh, a different kind of a take for me because it wasn't something I had, you know, wanted or thought about much about doing. It wasn't like a goal that I had, you know, processed. I had, of course, as commissioner, I had interacted with the legislature, um, you know, over a variety of things. So I was familiar with the process but I had never thought of being a legislator as such. I just sort of didn't like the way we were being represented. And I, you know, I kind of got, you know, it was like, I didn't, it wasn't something I thought long and hard about doing. It was that I was at a DTC meeting and they were, so everybody was struggling with the fact that they didn't have, a we didn't have a candidate or they we didn't, they weren't comfortable with the candidates. And I was like, what do you mean you can't find somebody? <laughs> and, and it sort of happened like that. And I said, well, I'll run, you know, and that was the beginning of it. Literally, I went home and I told my husband, I, I think I said I'd run for office. <laughs> <It> was...
1: <laughs> that's usually how it happens. Oh, that's that's exactly well, how when it happens. You're happened in the room. Usually when you leave the room is when <laughs> they uh,
2: put you up. <laughs> well, no, there were only about four people in the room when this happened. It was just like I was wringing my hands because I was like, I cannot believe that we've got the Problem we've got, and nobody, and we can't find anybody to, you know, that to run yeah. that can win, you know. Yeah. Or we, you who knew? Yeah. You know, but it was it was the beginning of the process.
1: Yeah, and I mean, with that. I mean, so were you involved with your town committee for a little bit?
2: like Only about a, maybe a couple of months. I mean, well, I hadn't. You were, I, so you were, you were new. Like, I was relatively new and I was frustrated by the fact that there weren't very many, people. you know, it just, it, it just, um, I mean, obviously the town committee had been going on, but my involvement in it hadn't been that, you know, it'd probably been like, I still think in terms of semesters, it had probably been like, you know, four or five months or something, six months. So I wasn't. I wasn't really, um, I hadn't been, I wasn't invested in politics, frankly, that much. I just got um, tired of what I was seeing come at us. And I wanted a different approach.
1: And your background is different than, um, you know, a lot of the legislators. I mean, you were involved with administering government. Uh, and, you know, you come from a social work background. I know that, you know, UConn, ha-
2: the School of Social Work, actually has a political training program. They didn't uh, at the time. Right. Uh, they have one now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm involved in trying to, you know, assist social workers wherever I can. But that wasn't something they had at the, you know, they had then.
1: Right. And I, I, I find it interesting, the intersection of social work and politics, because it, yeah, it yeah. just, it, you natural. know... At, it, it, exactly. And it makes a lot of sense. Can you talk a little bit about like your social work background and, you know, being a legislator, you know, what it was like in terms of navigating the legislative process um, and looking at policy and bringing that perspective to your colleagues and also in terms of just getting legislation passed like, you um, you know, was there a main issue that you really pushed or I, I it's I find well, it really interesting.
2: Once, once you're a social worker, you know, it's like you it social work is in everything, just like law. Law is in everything for me. It's like you. I find I don't tend to separate the two. And I don't think that I necessarily separated them when I was a legislator. It's like you. it gives you a different set of tools. Social work and law are very different, you know, very different but they're often going after the same objective. And it's just like you have an entirely different set of tools. And you tend to use social work, not just in terms of thinking through policy, but in dealing with your fellow legislators. You're know, yeah. in dealing with difficult conversations or difficult situations or engaging people. Um, and I had wonderful social work colleagues. We actually started a social work caucus, which I hope holds together now that I'm gone. But um, I we had started um, an actual uh, social work caucus because there are seven social workers um, in the Connecticut General Legislature, now six, I guess, unless we gained another one. But, um, you know, together we were a very powerful, powerfully uh, placed and in useful places to be able to make a real difference. And we were just getting to the point that we were going to start, you know, all of us had students. So the ability to bring those students together and as well as um, social workers who had, you know, who were in uh, policy positions, in legislative positions, was a great opportunity both to further the learning of social work students, but also to, um, you know, to embed social work practice in the legislature. And it's there anyway, because like I said, those seven social workers, you know, I'll, I'll forget them if I try to name them all, but a few <laughs> off the top, you know, Tony Walker, Ann Hughes. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's we're really there, got some solid, um, strong yeah. um, women yep. and, and, and men, us, I believe Steve Cassano, uh, you know, so we've got one senator. We, you know, it was a good group of people. And once a social worker, always a social worker in terms of seeing the opportunity to help people essentially fit better into their environment. Yeah. And as you know, the work of constituent constituency work is social work you know? Yes. Um, very and I, so. I loved, you know, that aspect. And even talking at the doors is social work. I mean, I had a couple of, you know, just knocking on the doors. I, one man, I kind of came, he was, he told me he was just about to commit suicide. Oh,
1: wow.
2: He had stopped what he was doing to answer the door. <laughs> and it was me with my brochures. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. But, Taking the, you know, you know, my husband who was, crossing in the car thought I was mad because obviously that needed to be addressed immediately. That's not something you say, oh, we'll take a brochure and I'll see you next week. Yeah. So we, you know, I mean, I get in gate, we sat down, we talked for maybe an hour and a half. I mean, we, you know, we, Wow. it was a, it, there, there was no question. It, it wasn't a role. It may have been inappropriate in the role that I was in. But like I said, you can't, you see somebody in that kind of pain and you're there and yeah. they're telling you. That that's what they were getting ready to do this isn't something right. you you can walk away from I don't care yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. so I you know sat down and we talked and we cried and we you know we just and my husband was sitting in the car thinking <laughs> <freaking> because <laughs> he couldn't hear. And he didn't get out of the car until the man embraced me at the end. He's like, okay, I don't know what's going <laughs> on here, but this, this isn't part of the script. You know, yeah. he didn't know whether, he didn't know what was going on. He could see the man crying. He could see a bunch of things going on. And he was like, I don't know, but, the, you know, but anyway, that kind of thing. I had a couple of experiences like that um, where social work, I, I, I was making another calls. This was when I was actually um, the last election. I was in the middle of making calls and the call just before my call, hi, I'm Pat wilson Phineas, and I'm here to help. You know, the woman had just learned from the police that her son had been killed in a car accident and I was the next call. And she was in the middle of my spiel. She's saying to me, well, I'm sorry, I'm I, I'm not like really attending to what you're saying. And then she told me and I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. So that was another example when you you just sit down and, and you know, embrace somebody with the strength that you might have that they don't have at that moment. Just to ask the woman, are you sitting down? Is there somebody, you know, you do the thing, but it's like you're you suddenly step out of role. And I'm sure that happens to, whether people are social workers or not, as a legislator, you run into all kinds of situations where you may be called upon to use skills that you know, you you didn't plan to use when you knocked on the door, but it's a human profession, you are dealing with human beings who have real human problems. And so the opportunity to be able to engage and assist is a magnificent part of being a legislator and that you know I'm, there are just examples of that whether it's over the phone whether you're whether you start with somebody who's screaming at you about something and you talk them down into a conversation yeah or you talk them down into sending you an article or 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 doing something other than screaming at you it's such a feeling of success to me
1: yeah
2: it's, to me that's that's part of the excitement and then genuinely helping You know, genuinely being able to connect somebody to resources or give somebody an opportunity that they didn't know that was there or to give somebody an option that they hadn't had or even just to be able to talk to somebody who needs to be talked to at that point in time when you happen to interact with them. It's a privilege and an honor, you know, and part that, you know, you you, being a social worker helped, but so did being a lawyer, although you don't offer legal advice as such, but you certainly can see a legal problem and you can certainly get somebody to the right place. And you can certainly tell them that is a problem you need to see a lawyer about or, in, you know, that kind of thing. So you, the professions, whatever you are, I suspect if you're an electrician, you use it in your job as a legislator. I mean, I'm not picking on electricians, but just saying, I don't think it matters which profession you're in. I know my friend Saud Anwar, as a doctor and he uses it constantly in his work and you, that's what you do. So I've always been blessed to have those dual professions and to be able to, you know, to, to build, you know, to, to, to build from them. Um, Wow. That's, uh, that's
1: intense. That's
2: intense. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it can, it, 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 but it's also extremely rewarding. Yeah. You know, and then from the policy standpoint, being able to understand how social systems work, being able to understand how people receive things. You know, that's what we learn as social workers. It's not just what you want to tell somebody, it's how they receive it. You know, it's like there's a two p you know, so understanding that in, in creating legislation um, is important, like the telehealth, understanding the importance of getting telehealth into the Medicaid catalog. And obviously, and then when the pandemic hit, Tell her, you know, we're but those kinds of those kinds of things are, are you know, to me that's that's what the job, what that part of the job was. Um, so I, <laughs> I don't know. I'll run on, and you have to stop
1: me. Please. No, that's great. I think Tanaya has the she has the next question. Okay
0: yeah and so, in working in all in all these different careers, you know, such as being a lawyer, working in social work, and legislation um have you ever faced any obstacles in your career because you are a woman? well, because you are a woman
2: sure, um, but I don't tend to say usually by the time I figure out it was an obstacle, I'm already past it mm-hmm. i don't I don't necessarily tend to view them i think it was my father maybe that taught me that it's like you you're the one in charge of defining right things know, you don't some people other people don't get to define that that's your job so if you don't define it as as a as a problem and you you know deal with it then it it isn't it's not the same problem so i mean i i I can respond to your question but i'm just saying i don't know if i see it that way um there have been times <laughs> when I have had realizations, uh, like I didn't realize what was happening until after the fact. That's what happens to me often. And I remember, you know, how I was sitting at meeting with the governor at the time, and there were a lot of men, a lot of the larger agency and were run by men. And they were, there used to be a table. it's still there, I'm sure, the governor's table. And they're probably still sitting around it. But my point was, I used to, there was never room at the table. There was, the men were always sitting around the table. And by the time I got there, initially, I just thought it was, I wasn't there early enough. But then I realized, no, this is a power thing. The power people are sitting around the table and all of the women were sitting like in the second and third rows. And it wasn't, and I didn't realize, I didn't realize the power dynamic. My problem was at the time I weighed about three hundred and fifty pounds, and I couldn't sit comfortably in the little chairs that they had that were behind the second row. And I wanted, to, and I, you know, without crossing my leg and holding my papers on, like a man sits. So I was determined to get to the table. So, the, so I came in like six forty-five. I said I'm going to get here earlier than anybody else. And when I did, what happened was the power center shift shifted. The men. As they came in, they didn't sit in their usual seats around the table. They all gathered over by the water cooler. And the women, you know, it was, I didn't realize what had happened until after it had happened. But what happened was I changed the power dynamic at the table. And it reminded me of Shirley Chisholm's famous. I was just going to say, if if, if there's no seat at the table, then bring a folding folding chair. chair. And in effect, (laughs) that's what I did. Awesome. Although I didn't realize it at the time, but I've since used that as a teaching example with students because you, you don't, you're not, we're not really taught how to look at how, how to see power in operation, like, you know, to view it that way. Yep. But you can, like if somebody says something really dumb at a table in a meeting and everybody kind of moves away from, it, you know, when you, 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 know you, you, when, if you watch, you see these, Power dynamics play out, and it to me, it's. I just find it. I find it fascinating. But that was an example of something that happened that taught me something. Because after that, I'm like, oh, I see. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna make sure I'm sitting in that first seat of yeah, right. the table next to the governor. You know, the, these seats aren't assigned. <laughs> you know, and they have. You know, what I'm saying. And once I understood that, it gave me a lot of insight into a lot of things. But that was, it wasn't, so I wasn't discriminated against. It wasn't that I was being discriminated against. It was that I didn't, I, I decided to interpret it differently and mm-hmm. take an action that, you know, that may have been bold, but I didn't see it that way because I didn't see the obstacle. Right. So I, it's <laughs> a just long just, answer. Yeah. It's like Rosa
1: Parks, Shirley Chisholm, like just one where yeah. you sit.
2: Well, and also that sometimes you're the one that puts those limitations on yourself. Yeah. You know, I mean, we have to be careful of that as women and as, as Black women, too. I mean, because we are so used to being defined and misdefined and, you know, put into a box that sometimes I think we operate within that box and realize that we're part of that definition. You know, we're part of the reason that that definition holds sometimes, you know, yeah. that there's equal power, I guess is what I wanna say.
1: Yeah, and I guess it's interesting to me, one thing I found, like I w- wanna talk about your current work mm-hmm. uh, that touches on that, but I found it really interesting as a woman of color representing a very heavy white district.
2: Mm-hmm. And uh, did I you- I found it interesting too. Yeah, I mean,
1: <laughs> like, did you ever feel, um, you know, uh, being treated differently because,
2: uh, you know, being a woman of color or, you know, well, you know I did, door to door, did, you know, I think this goes back to what I was saying just a moment ago. I didn't see that <laughs> it might've been there. And yes, now I have to say this carefully because color always matters. And I don't care how, somebody wants to pretend that they don't see that, you, that there is difference, it is there, it matters, it is important, it should not be ignored. So I'm not trying to say that it wasn't a factor, it was a factor, but I didn't lead with that factor. It wasn't like, we're gonna focus on race, we're gonna focus on issues, and we're gonna focus on competence, we're gonna focus on what we want to get done at the legislature, not on the fact that my color is different than somebody else's. And I didn't approach it approach it like that. And frankly, n- neither did the district. I'm not saying it wasn't a factor. I'm not saying it didn't underlie. I'm not saying it wasn't very much there. And I did run into it at the doors occasionally, only once or twice. You know, I had one guy, you know, a couple of bad experiences, but they weren't really bad experiences to me because... I like to take those people on. I, I love those people. So it, did, it wasn't a bad experience to me. It kind of frightened the person I was with. Like, you know, you have somebody riding with you in the car. Right. You're like, get back in here. I'm like, oh, no. You know, we have to talk. But, like, but um, you know, it's like the, the, that kind of thing happened, but it didn't happen a lot. And frankly, I was more supported than some people might have thought I would be. But then I grew up here. You know, I was born in Willamette. I've been in Ashford since I was six, you know, and, the, and even though I, you know, was in Europe for a while, this is my home. Everybody knew my dad. You know, he was a Tuskegee airman and sort of a hometown, dubbed a hometown hero. And so I grew up in an environment where I wasn't an unknown entity and I'm living in the same house that, you know, he built back in, you know, 56 or so. So I'm like, you know, the, the and sitting on the the land that he bought. And he bought this land from a local person because when he was trying to get loans, of course, redlining and all that kind of stuff was an issue. And so he bought 14 acres of land from a local farmer. And that's why I'm stuck out. I shouldn't say stuck. (laughs) That's why I'm out here with the lack of diversity. And however, a lovely piece of land and a home I'm very happy in and I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. I can drive to New York or Hartford or something. Yeah, no, yeah, very. <laughs> Not a New lot York. of diversity around here, but you know, I can. Yeah, I can find. I am the diversity. Yeah,
1: <laughs> no, but that's yeah, and I, I think. Could we talk a little bit about um, your work with the the witness stones? Oh, sure. Yeah, that was an I,
2: unexpected I, surprise. Uh, yeah, you know, and I think that that is delightful. so
1: fascinating. And yeah. if you could talk, maybe just you know, um, absolutely. Yeah, that would be wonderful.
2: This came about quite as a surprise to me because I didn't, you know, I knew my, some of my history. I knew my uncles, my grandfather, that kind of thing, but not much more than that. But about a year and a half ago, I got a call while I was just sitting on my back porch, and it was from a man, never heard of him before, a man named Dennis Culloden, who was a researcher and had done a lot of research on enslaved people um, that in Connecticut because no one really talks about or knows about slavery in the North. We all think of slavery as being something in the South, but slavery was very much a factor. And what I discovered on that day was that he had been researching what turned out to be my family line from 1727. So my forebears were captured in um, somewhere in the Caribbean. They probably were from Africa, but were brought from the Caribbean to Guilford in 1727. And so, and so I now have the entire line of my family from 17, to, you know, 11 generations from them to my grandchildren. And so I am putting that, you know, that history together. So the history of the, um, my family was free probably 80 years before the Emancipation Proclamation, but they had been enslaved from, because slavery in Connecticut was over in 1848, but it was virtually over by eighteen um, twenty. So the you know it's it's too long a story to tell quickly, but um, suffice it to say that I've discovered you know these generations of history, and it ties. It, it is American history. It is Connecticut history. The history of my family is that history, and so studying it and putting it together has been a fascinating opportunity, not just to look at the issue of. Enslaved, you know, enslavement in Connecticut, but to watch the progress of my family through that time until now and into the generations, the next generations, my son's generation. So he, you know, because he's, you know, very successful in the movie business, but his, the, the, the arc of the family's travels from Guilford through those years, through my father, who was a Tuskegee airman. Through my, you know, my grandfather, who you know was he was at Goucher College for 50 years, but those kinds of things are things that I'm now discovering, and tying it and laying it next to American history and watching the development through a single family is a fascinating experience. Being able to be a part of the Witness Stones program because I am now um, the co co director of the board, um, we're now. Uh, spreading information throughout Connecticut and in different parts of the, there's interest in different parts in the of the country for the work that the witness towns uh, project does, which is not just about my family. It's about identifying these forgotten individuals in towns all across Connecticut, um, and unearthing them using original um, research. You know, church records, death records, census, all that kind of thing, and putting together the beginnings of stories of people and then honoring their existence. It was built off the model, I believe it's called Suffolstein. It was the Holocaust model where people in um, Germany who had been uh, you know, sucked up by the Holocaust were remembered their existence. This person lived, this person prayed, this person was here, you know, and a little stone was placed. Well, we're essentially doing the same thing for enslaved um, African-Americans and occasionally Native Americans Um, that are in Connecticut's history and that were, you know, I I found out that my fifth great grandfather fought in the American Revolution and so things of that nature. So it's been a fascinating um, trip of tying Connecticut's history and U.S. history to my family's history. Is this um,
1: information like? Is this available online? Is there a website that? How do people learn about?
2: Well, um, if you put witness stones into your browser, the website will probably come off. Um, okay. I should have it memorized, but I don't. But it's. But if you just um, put, you know, witness stones project, um, it, you know, it'll pop up. Or Dennis Coulton. There's lots of information about it. I just did a pre- presentation for the Madison Historical Society on the eleven generations of, of my. Family's history, um, and it you know it was fascinating. I don't think it got taped, so I don't think it's available. Because I generally write everything down, I I could easily reproduce this again. So it's not a you know not a loss, but it was a fascinating opportunity to look at the development of Connecticut, um, the legal, and I'm taking it from a legal perspective because I kind of can't help it. But looking at the development of the laws in Connecticut that um, supported slavery. Mm-hmm. The entire, you know, the when the abolitionist movement came in and how that worked and what the overall laws that were going on in the country were at the time. I'm looking now at, and because I have with each generation, I can look at the historical period and put it together in that way, um, you know, and show the accomplishments of the family next to what was going on in the larger country. You know, it's it's become you know, a a fascinating project that I'm, you know, very much engaged in. And then of course, sharing that with students, sharing that with, um, you know, we're writing um, curriculum, we're hoping to write curriculum as down as far as third grade, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade, and up through college um, as a part of, uh, you know, a part of bringing back the lost history of Connecticut. Because, you know, did you, did anybody realize that, that 10,000 black men fought in the American Revolution yeah. across the country. I mean, I certainly didn't know that. Um, more than 80 Connecticut towns have revolutionary heroes that are un, un, attested to unknown. So that history simply is part of something that needs to be developed and brought forth because it increases all of our humanity. And so that's largely what the Witness Stones program is doing is creating Bringing to to bear this old knowledge that has been lost from Connecticut's history, and breaking it down in a manner that students can digest it, understand it, and grow from it, and that our history can be made whole because our history is not whole. Our history is largely white European history, yeah. Uh, you know, and that's not <laughs> that's not what it is. So yeah. for all of the for all of those that have been left out of American history. And I'm talking about, you know, everybody from Native Americans to Asians to Latinx to all of the cultures of America need to be, you know, cherished, displayed and their accomplishments are American accomplishments that need to be recognized. But that's not the way that we have historically done it, you know, in this in this state or country. Yeah. Um. So some of the changes legislatively been made are making this more available. Yeah. And being you know.
1: taught in schools, which I think is. Because I know I didn't learn any of this when I was,
2: when I was in school. <laughs> Neither did I. And, yeah. you know, like I said, here I am, 70, 70 years old, and I'm finding out things I should have found out when I was, you know, 10.
0: Yeah. And,
2: you know, I mean, I could talk on this top, topic forever because it's so exciting to me, but there is so much knowledge, and it so shapes our behavior today. I mean, when you start looking at history and you look at what's going on with voting rights today, this is not new. This is nope. a repeat Yep, of what <laughs> happened, you know, and it and it's a it's a it's a sickening repeat, yep. because for people to act like like this isn't a you know that like this isn't what we went through already and thought we were through. I mean, as an American people, and here we are looking backwards to the same sorts of um <laughs> deprivations, uh, trying to keep people from voting you know, all of that kind of thing that has been so big a part of Black American history, to see it being repeated now, and to see, to watch the other party abdicate its responsibility as American, as American citizens, frankly, Mm -hmm. and to watch our country teetering on the edge of a crisis is, you know, it requires us to understand and to look at history and to value history so as not to so as not to, you know, to repeat the bad parts of it. And we're, we're not, I'm not sure that we're doing that as effectively as we need to.
1: I remember when I was in high school, the first day of my history class, the history teacher said, why do we study history? (laughs) And everybody's giving these different answers. And I remember uh, Patty O'Donnell uh, said, because it repeats itself. And he's like, exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, I just, I, that always, I obviously not forget it. It was like 30 something years ago, but, um, you know, but you're seeing it when you see the patterns, it's true.
2: And when you, when you look at how things developed and, and when you go back to history and you look at Jim Crow and you look at the black codes and you look at all of the, all of the reasons that black people have been systematically held back and then you then you look at wh- if you look at what's happened with COVID and all of the disparity that is now jumping out at everybody, it's not a surprise when you simply look at history and look what has been done systematically, intentionally, and deliberately and effectively. Then yeah. w- we shouldn't be surprised with the disparities that we're seeing. But unearthing that and making it clear is part of what I'm you know doing through narrative because it's not that I've given up on on our age group, but I see hope in the children. You know, they, they have not been indoctrinated in the way that all of us have been indoctrinated by the things that have happened over the last 50 years. And just because I'm black doesn't mean I haven't suffered the same racist ideology imprinted in my head that everybody else in this country has. You know, it's like, it's it's something that the our newest generations we're we're aware enough now that perhaps we can avoid doing that again um, to this to the children. And in in fact, you know, the, the new awakening that we're seeing in terms of understanding the importance of history and that it's not old, it's what's happening now. The fact that people are wanting this information are wanting to understand it, reconcile it, and work with it gives me hope for you know our, our generations that are coming forward.
0: Yeah, because I was, I was just going to ask, because like you guys said, history does repeat itself. And um we see some of the same stuff happening again. How do we, how do we overcome that? Like, just, just me being a woman of color, mm-hmm. and just women, period, mm-hmm. you kind of see, like, we, we make it to a certain, to a certain extent, but then we're reminded constantly of, of different things that may have happened back then. So then we kind of ask ourselves, well, how far did we make it? So I was, I was wondering like, what are some things that we can do like as women to overcome that and maybe push um, other women in the right direction so that we can actually make more of a stride, I guess.
2: I'm all for calling stuff out. You know, I've had it with just, you know um, I don't want to say being nice. I hope I can continue to be nice, but I'm, 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 I'm losing patience with people who want to remain ignorant. You know, when information is there and when it's available and when you can talk to people, you know, I don't let slights go by anymore. I've had it with microaggressions (laughs) saying I will stop and point them out to people, not in a mean way, not in in a hostile way, but simply, what did you mean by that? Help me understand what you meant so I can respond to that. And nine times out of 10, the person doesn't even realize what they said. They didn't, even, they didn't even they I've done it I've said ignorant things that I you know that when I've stopped to think about it I probably won't mention them now but I mean there have been things that just came out of my past my father used to have an expression that I've never even thought of as a as a potentially racist expression and that's true of other people as well so giving people the opportunity to hear what they've just said and to think about it I have found to be helpful because at the very least sometimes it generates conversation and if the person meant what they said <laughs> meant to invoke that reaction in you, then I take it on right then and there you know I'm saying it's not I'm not going to be belittled by somebody's trying to belittle me again, that is my ability to define myself It's not for that person to define me as in whatever manner they think they're going to define me you know it's that's a, that's that's my head that's within my power, you know, and when you when you work hard, when you do a good job, when you, you know, when you do everything you can do and you still don't make the grade because of racism or something like that. I mean, I don't, I'm not defeated. You know, I've got energy for other things. And if my time is not right in a particular place there's another spot waiting. You know, there's another opportunity. There is growth opportunities all over the place. And because I never feel like I've never felt like I've exhausted my abilities in whatever function I've found myself in. I feel like the more you the harder you work and the more you do, the more abilities you grow and the stronger you get. It doesn't work the other way. You don't exhaust yourself, you get better. You you may just have to apply your betterness in an avenue you hadn't thought of. You know, so I mean I I guess I just my message would be don't let anything stop you there is you know there's plenty there are plenty of things out there to try to stop women in general and to try to stop black women or people in particular. but you know I, I stick by my you know, my my Tuskegee Airman Creed that I keep on my little thing here. it's like aim high, believe in yourself, use your brain, be ready to go, never quit expect to win and rise above that's the creed i live by and that you know it's like whatever happens see it as a door see it as a door open rather than one that's closed in your face because that's invariably what it is that's the beauty of life at least that's the that's the beauty i find in it you even the bad experiences are building blocks
1: well that um, I think that that's actually an excellent way to end because my question was going to be, what's your advice to when wanting women wanting to get into involved in politics, government, or change making? And get in, that,
2: just do it, just do just it. get in because it's not that hard. It's not, you know, it's it's like law school. People think, oh my god, just go. It's not yeah. that. Hard. If you can read, you can go to law school. If you, you know, yeah. if you can walk, you can and talk and, 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 and smile and engage people, you can do (laughs) pop, you can do politics. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not that it may not be what you think you want to do, but it may be where your skills are now needed.
0: Yeah.
2: And, uh, you know, I mean, that's sort of the message I got when I was thinking, I don't want to be in politics, but yet I'm running how did that happen you yeah. know it's like no I think my skills were needed at that place in time and it it gave me a you know a, a different type of depth yeah. and a and a boost it, back into that I mean I'm not saying I'm not you know coming back who knows yeah. but I'm just saying in the meantime I've got lots of energy and there's lots of good trouble to get into and I continue to be ready for it. R E S P E C T. Find out what it means to me. R E S P E C T.